Hello, and welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, the podcast where we look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. On 7 August 2019, the Society was pleased to have Michael Trim and Claire Schneider of Level 27 Chambers attend to discuss recent cases addressing the questions, can my contract be varied by what happens on site or how claims are treated? And is my entire agreement clause effective? The event, kindly hosted by Ashurst in Brisbane, was well attended by industry professionals keen to hear from Michael and Claire on this topic. For those of you who could not attend, this episode records their excellent presentation. Be sure to subscribe to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast to be alerted when new episodes are available. We look forward to sharing further podcasts with you. I'm Melissa Yeo. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, We are going to really focus on two topics. The title is a little bit misleading. We're using these sense terms in a loose sense. Claire coined a great phrase as we were walking up. This is targeted nerdiness. Um, this isn't meant to be an academic thesis. This is not meant to be a detailed exploration of the law referring to every single case. We are hoping to provoke you to think differently, to think outside the box and to consider some of the recent cases. We do have one focus, which is how dependable are the written terms? So I'm starting with the first topic, which is the within the contract. How can the contract be varied? Can it be varied? If you put an entire agreement clause, is that important? I think the modern trend in litigation has tended to be, in Australia at least, to treat entire agreement clauses, no oral modification clauses, no waiver clauses, as being maybe important but not determinative, and we'll, we'll come to some of the case law about that. Really, the point of the discussion today is to make you think about these clauses generally, and there's at least three different types of them, um, and perhaps for us all to have a renewed focus on how important they might be. So what am I talking about? Well, when I'm talking about an entire agreement clause, the purists among you uh, and some of the decisions will say an entire agreement clause, strictly speaking, is a clause that says any previous discussions we've had, any previous communications are largely irrelevant. The entire agreement is embodied in this written document. So strictly speaking, that's an entire agreement clause and we'll come to a decision of Justice Jackson's which says that. I'm using the clause, the phrase, in a slightly broader sense to encompass uh, clauses that endeavour to regulate contact and communication both before and after the written contract is signed. So the Rock decision in the Supreme Court that we'll come to talks about no oral modification clauses or, as Jeremy said, no waiver clauses. Um, If you're looking for some interesting definitions of some of those clauses, paragraphs 1 and 14 uh, of Lord Sumption's decision, Lord Sumption's reasons rather, in Rock and MWB. Uh, Interesting. Uh, His Lordship said the first of these is a term, contractual term, prescribing that an agreement may not be amended save in writing, which is called a no oral modification clause. And the decision is all about whether or not such clause is effective. But later in the reasons refers to entire agreement clauses saying uh, that they provide that they set out the entire agreement between the parties and supersede all proposals and prior agreements, arrangements and understandings. So before and after. Um, so that's what we're talking about here. Again, not adopting too strict. So why is it important? Well, Jeremy's touched on this just to set some context. Things happen. Human beings run and regulate contractual arrangements. Human beings run projects. 
of all sorts of sizes, sometimes a few of them, sometimes a lot of them. So to what extent can what they say and what they do change what's been written down? In a, a larger project, that can be quite significant because as the management of a company, the board might have signed off on one agreement and might consider that the written terms will regulate how claims are brought, for example, uh, how reserves are set, etc. But those who are trying to carry out the project at a different level might be approaching the matter on a more pragmatic basis, might think there's too many things changing, there's too many things happening, I can't keep up with the strict requirements in the contract. In other words, does it matter if we put the contract in the drawer? Um, and the point of this talk, really, to start at the end, is to say that it does. And we'll go through the historical position in Australia, but the Supreme Court decision uh, I'll submit to you for the reasons we'll go through um, upholds the sanctity of the contract, is consistent with recent Queensland Supreme Court, recent High Court decisions, and suggests that we should all be paying a much greater regard to what is written and a much um, more careful scrutiny over what people say and do. So what's the position before the MMWB case? Well, historically, at least in Australia, the position has been that despite such a clause that says you can't uh, change the contract orally or whatever you discussed previously is irrelevant, you can free to dispense with that clause. Um, really, it's, and this is borrowing from the MWB reasons, starts with a decision in New York of Justice Cardozo, who says those who may make a contract can unmake it. Just because you've got a clause in there that forbids a change, that doesn't mean it can't be changed. It can be waived, it can be dispensed with. Which is slightly counterintuitive when you actually stop to think about it, which is the parties, when they've reduced their bargain to writing, have agreed to a clause that says, we cannot change this agreement except if we sign it. But the reasoning and this principle says, well, yes, that's not right. Parties have autonomy to change their bargains later, and if they choose to do that, then that's effectively to be given effect by the courts. Um, now, that's different to a scenario where statute of frauds or something like that uh, imposes a requirement for something to be in writing. What we're really talking about here is the parties themselves imposing their own restriction on what they do, um, which is slightly different. And we, in Australia at least, start with the High Court's decision in Lieben Malloy. Now, I've focused on the decisions that Lord Sumption refers to in the Rock decision. There are a plethora of those, and I'll touch on some additional ones in a moment. But if, like me, when you read that, you had a reaction a little bit like that, I would not at all be surprised, um, except for the fact that my hair has gone far greyer than the people I'll show you in the slide in a minute. Um, that's a slightly extraordinary statement, and when you first read it, it's tempting to think, well, it's a decision from 1906, what does it matter? That's clearly not right. It's not consistent with the modern statement of the law. It cannot be the case that there's an implied promise to pay for what someone reasonably does. If we've agreed on a fixed price, fixed price must rule. Others, contractors, I suspect, will have more sympathy for the notion, well, hold on a moment, if I do more work, it should be an implied promise that you pay me for that. But um, notwithstanding the reaction of my friends there, in fact, this principle, the principle that Justice Cardozo first outlined in 1919 and was picked up even earlier in the High Court, finds its expression throughout the more recent Australian decisions. And again, following chronologically those cases that are referred to by Lord Sumption, we start with the Commonwealth and Crothal Hospital Services. And you'll see that the court there referred to these as long-established principles. So notwithstanding the temptation to look at a decision from 1909 and think, that's just so old, it can't possibly be relevant. It's not consistent with the more modern authorities. 
um, in the federal court at least, uh, there was a clear acceptance of the notion that it's open to the parties to vary it, and just because you have a clause that says it can't be varied orally afterwards is really irrelevant. What we do as a court is we look at the party's conduct, we look at their statements, um, and moreover, um, we'll dispense with arguments like the one the Commonwealth ran in that case, which is, well, we have a clause that says anything that's oral, anything that's in conduct should effectively be irrelevant. And you'll see the court there says, well, that's all very well and good, but um, the parties are free to vary, they're free to discuss that, and in doing so, if you read that decision in more detail, the theory that underpins it is, well, just because you originally agreed in writing that you wouldn't vary your contract except uh, in writing, that doesn't mean that you can't expressly, or more importantly, impliedly, dispense with that very clause itself. Now, where does that find its expression in a day-to-day -day sense? Well, if um, project managers on either side of an infrastructure project or a residential build or the like uh, talk to each other, they say, this is not workable, this variations, this notice regime. Can their conduct, even though they don't discuss it, can it be taken to have waived, can it be taken to have varied, in this case, um, that requirement? Well, these cases are saying, yes, it can. That if it's supported by consideration, Claire will be talking about various legal doctrines that go outside of the contract. But if we're just looking at the parties varying the contract in a sense that a formal sense, um, the courts are recognising that principle. And you'll see again, it's another decision that Lord Sumption picks up in the Rock case, uh, 2003 this time, so stepping through history, showing a consistency of reasoning, you'll see the courts saying that uh, it's open to the parties by express oral agreement or by contract implied from conduct to impose or to waive a previous clause. Um, and finally, just touching on this position coming again slightly further in time, South Australian decision of Alston and Yokogawa, you'll see that um, a fairly robust dismissal. Now that also finds its expression in some recent Queensland cases, CMC and um, uh, Wicket, you'll see that uh, principle recognised and also in a 2017 decision of Hawcroft General Trading in the New South Wales <coughs> Court of Appeal. The point of taking us on this sort of whistle-stop tour of the Australian law is from 1909 to 2017, 2018 in Queensland, you've seen a recognition that notwithstanding clear words used by parties that the contract cannot be varied except if it's in writing, the courts are prepared effectively to ignore it or at least to attach less significance to it. Um, so that causes us as construction lawyers at least to think slightly more laterally and think like our friends here, but what about all those cases that deal with notice provisions? So there's a range of cases, that I've got lots of references, starts with the case of Jennings, case of OPAT and the like, where courts have said, no, no, if you want to have a contractual entitlement to varied work, to payment, if you want to have a contractual entitlement to an extension of time, you have to strictly comply with notice provisions in the contract. How does it sit with those? Because on the one hand, you have the courts expressly um, holding the parties to their bargain, but on the other you have the courts saying that they can, by their conduct, effectively change the contract. I'm glossing over some legal complications about consideration of the like for present purposes. Similarly, uh, prerequisites for variations, notices, conditions, signatures in writing and the like. As construction lawyers, it's interesting if you take out groups of those cases, compare the reasoning in one set with the reasoning in the other, to some degree they pass us like ships in the night. 
there's not in the notice cases a consideration of the extent to which parties' conduct can constitute a variation. And similarly, in some of the um, no oral modification entire agreement cases, you won't see reference to the variation cases. So why is that important? Well, clear as mud. Well, this is why, and the purpose of this presentation is to challenge us to think outside of the box a little bit take a case that is not a construction case, it's not decided in an infrastructure setting, and think how might that be applied by a party, by a court, um, in a construction position. So let's then turn to MWB. So MWB was a company that operated some serviced offices in London. Um, Rock Advertising took out a licence which enabled it to occupy a part of those offices for a period of 12 months. Um, in an entirely unsurprising turn of events to those of us occasionally involved in these disputes. After about six months, Rock was four months behind. Now, this is the point at which the parallels with the construction industry, I think, start to become apparent, if you're prepared to think slightly laterally. Um, Rock claimed, through its director, that uh, he had telephoned the agent and had a discussion about moving forward and that they had formed an agreement on the telephone that the previous arrears would not be payable, but rather would be paid in a different way, in a different series of catch-up payments, so that they wouldn't be due and payable now, they'd be due and payable in the future, in return for rock paying rather than defaulting. Uh, now, the Supreme Court decision, and the, you'll see the Court of Appeal, if you track it back, glosses over lots of interesting things like, can, is that a consideration, is that a bargain that's properly supported by consideration? In the end, the Supreme Court doesn't decide that question. Lord Sumption says, look, that's actually a very interesting question. If you agree to pay slightly less, but you have agreed to pay nonetheless, are you actually uh, agreeing to a bargain that's legally enforceable? But that's not ultimately what was discussed here. What was important here, again, in parallel, I think, to some construction and infrastructure disputes was the person who allegedly reached that agreement on the telephone went and discussed it with her boss, to use Lord Sumption's word, in case anyone thinks I'm being particularly loose, um, and the boss said, no way, I'm not agreeing to that. That's not at all the bargain. I've got a contract. I've got a lease. You've got to pay me, in what you might think was an entirely unsurprising reaction. So what then happened? Again, predictable. MWB locks Rock out, sued for arrears. Rock said, well, you can't do that. I've got an agreement we reached on the telephone. Again, if we pause and just think about the parallels with typical construction projects, it becomes apparent that, although this is at a slightly simpler level, these sorts of things happen all of the time. People say, I can't comply with that variation requirement. I can't comply with that notice. People are so busy getting the project delivered that it's impossible, using that, sense, using that term very loosely, to put in the amount of detail that the contract requires. And there's then a dispute, typically, that goes something like this. Well, you didn't put your notices in so you don't have an entitlement. You didn't put your notice in so there's no variation to the work. You didn't put your notice in so you've got no compensable extension of time. It's, in my submission to you, entirely analogous with this set of circumstances. So, what happened in the case? Well, the first instance, um, the judge held that there was an oral agreement, that the agent who'd been telephoned had ostensible authority. So notwithstanding the fact that this was not the boss, this was not the person who had ultimately signed up to this agreement, the person the tenant spoke to had ostensible authority and did reach the agreement. But the judge at first instance said, but I'm not prepared to find that that's enforceable because there was a clause in the contract which said it had to be in writing. Um, again, you might think unsurprising when you have regard to the terms of the contract, um, which was clause 7.6 as you'll see there. Now that clause, just pausing for a moment, because this sets the context for pre-contract, post-contract oral discussions or conduct, 
covers both. It purports to say that it sets out all of the terms and that no other representations or terms shall apply or form part of the licence. That's typically covering pre-contract statements, things that are said before the written document is signed. And then it's saying all variations must be agreed and set out in writing post-contract conduct, post-contract statements, what the, House, what the Supreme Court referred to as no oral modifications. Well, the decision then went to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal said, well, we're prepared to endorse the finding below that there was an agreement that was reached. That's a factual matter upon which the judge has reached a decision. But we don't think that Clause 7.6 was effective to preclude that. And the reasoning loosely summarised is by agreeing to that matter on the telephone, you've impliedly agreed to dispense with that clause. Um, again, glossing over things like, is there effective consideration, all of which is detailed in the reasons. But what the Court of Appeal found was that MWB, the landlord, was bound by that telephone conversation and that the clause that said that any variation had to be in writing was ineffective. So, enter Lord Sumption and the Supreme Court. Well, the result is up there. They allowed the appeal and restored the original decision. In what, I, in what I think is a majestic piece of simplicity, Lord Sumption wrote that. In my opinion, the law should and does give effect to a contractual provision requiring specified formalities to be observed for a variation. I don't think that many of us will see a much clearer exposition of the law than that. Um, what the decision does, it's only about 10 pages. If you have a dispute that's in this field, I encourage you to read it. It is, if I can respectfully say so, a masterfully um, and beautifully written uh, set of reasons. It analyses all of the international position in a few pages. It goes through the Australian position, the Canadian, the American position. It then analyses the English position and in a typically self-deprecating way says it was equivocal before the decision. It reaches some interesting views about previous authorities and their effectiveness and their correctness, but ultimately concludes in paragraph 12. What Lord Sumption does in the space of three paragraphs over two pages is to set out firstly the reasons why, conceptually, a no oral modification clause ought to be upheld by the courts and then dismisses in one paragraph the reasons against it. And Lord Sumption says that there are essentially three reasons for including clauses in contracts commercially. The first is that the clauses prevent attempts to undermine written agreements by informal means, which is open to abuse. Again, if we analyse how projects are conducted, people who may not have the authority actually, but may have it ostensibly, in other words, may look like they've got the authority, could, despite the wishes of a board of directors, for example, purport to amend the way in which claims are treated. Lord Sumption says, secondly, Circumstances where oral discussions can easily give rise to misunderstandings and crossed purposes, a clause like a no oral modification clause avoids disputes, not just about whether it was intended, but what its exact terms are. Come to another decision of uh, Justice Jackson's in Queensland where it picks up this exact point. It is easy for people to remember different versions of conversations, particularly many years after the event. If people are speaking on the telephone, if they've got a hundred things going on, it's easy for lawyers five years after the event to cross over and nitpick over the words that were used. And it's easy for people to have different recollections. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. It doesn't mean they've got bad intentions. They just may have a different recollection. And the third reason is that a measure of formality in recording variations makes it easier for corporations to internally police the conduct of their employees. Again, perfectly logical, understandable reason for upholding and including such clauses. What Lord Sumption says in paragraph 13 
is that uh, the reasons advanced in the case law for disregarding clauses like this are entirely conceptual. Um, he analyzes several of these, and I won't touch on all of them. He says that there's an argument that it's conceptually impossible for the parties agree not to vary their contract by word of mouth because any agreement would be automatically destroyed upon their doing so, which is picking up a little bit of the Australian case as saying, well, if by your words you agree to do something different, you must have impliedly agreed to get rid of what you've already put in your contract. But what Lord Sumption says about that is that the difficulty is that if it's conceptually impossible, then it can't be done in the first place. Short of an overriding rule of law, presumably statutory, requiring writing as a condition of a formal validity, which in contracts for sale of land you'd see in the statute of frauds, for example. <coughs> Yet Lord Sumption says it's plain that you can, talks about various uh, legal systems, but most notably draws upon the Vienna Convention for the sale of goods for support that the law in many countries recognises that this is so. Um, then in paragraph 14, Lord Sumption talks about entire agreement clauses. So now moving in that case from a no oral modification after the contract back to a pre-contractual position and says, well, the equivalent position is found in entire agreement clauses. What Lord Sumption says is both are intended to achieve contractual certainty about the terms agreed and in the case of entire agreement clauses by nullifying prior collateral agreements relating to the same subject matter. In other words, giving some certainty that whatever it is we've discussed is irrelevant, it's only what's in writing that matters. Um, Lord Sumption analyses the position of collateral agreements and says, what if the party is making a collateral agreement, um, would that otherwise bind, uh, bind them? There's then a, quite an interesting analysis of some decisions, including one of Lord Denning, where Lord Sumption says the previous rationale should not be accepted. It must be the case that such clauses are capable of being enforced. And Lord Sumption concludes in 15, there's no conceptual inconsistency between a general rule allowing contracts to be made informally and a specific rule to the effect that a contract requiring writing for a variation is enforceable. So where does that take us to? And as you can see, you can relax, I'm nearly done. I'll hand on to someone much more intelligent than I am. Um, wh why is this important? Well, and what's the Australian law? I'm, again, not intending to be comprehensive, but I wanted to draw your attention to several decisions um, particularly in this state. And I start by referring to a decision of Justice Jackson's from December last year, Coast Corp Pacific Proprietary Limited and Stockland Development. And if you're interested, the citation is 2018 QSC 305, decision handed down just before Christmas last year, where from about paragraph 108, Justice Jackson analyses the position in relation to entire agreement clauses and concludes... Um, with this paragraph in a manner that I'd suggest to you is entirely consistent with the Supreme Court, which is that an entire agreement clause is a positive contractual provision containing a promise by each party to the other that the contract embodies the entire understanding and constitutes the entire terms. For a party to depart from that promise, and this is the important part, is a breach of that contract. When a party faced with a claim based on a contractual term inconsistent with the terms of an entire contract clause pleads it by way of a defence, they set up a term of the contract itself and a binding contractual promise by the opposite party as to the extent of the terms. It is not merely a presumptive rule of evidence. So if you go to that decision, you'll see, just as Jackson analyses the parole evidence rule, what effect does an entire agreement clause have? And concludes, no, no, this is much more than just a rule of evidence. This is a substantive part of the party's bargain and it should be upheld. And Justice Jackson concluded in paragraph 122, there are numerous policy reasons why parties should be free to do so. In other words, to restrict the ability of previous conversations, or I submit to you, 
uh, subsequent conversations from influencing or varying the terms and why a court should uphold them. And His Honour cites the High Court's decision in the matter of Equus Corp and Glengallen from 2004, where, again, just picking up a few of the words to highlight the consistency in my submission to you between the approach of the Australian Courts and the Supreme Court decision, it says, in the nature of things, oral agreements will sometimes be disputable. Resolving such disputation is commonly difficult, time-consuming, expensive and problematic. Where parties enter into a written agreement, the court would generally hold them to those obligations. At least it will do so unless relief is afforded by the operation of some statute or external doctrine. And it concludes with this statement from the High Court. The obligations of written agreements between parties cannot simply be ignored or brushed aside. So why, why am I belabouring some of those points? Well, it's tempting to think in one sense, and there is an excellent article, and I'm happy to give the reference because I'm indebted to it, from uh, the University of Western Australia refuting this position. But it's tempting to dismiss the United Kingdom position as either irrelevant or inconsistent with Australian law. But I'm attempting to challenge our thinking to say, in fact, it seems to me that it's entirely consistent with the more recent decisions. More recent decisions have been prepared to uphold the sanctity of a party's bargain. It's tempting to think, as we have historically done as practitioners, that an entire agreement clause will not be important, that we can spend months, if not years, delving into the party's disputes, the party's conduct, who said what, who wrote what email. But if we start from the proposition that there is an entire agreement clause and the, court, and the courts are prepared to recognise that, then at least insofar as the internal workings of the contract are concerned, we as practitioners should be prepared to recognise that it seems that there is more and more judicial support for the parties being upheld to the bargain they made at the beginning and for the parties not being able to vary the contract unless it is in the way that they expressly authorised it to be done. Uh, and with all of that, I will hand over to Claire to talk about outside of the contract. Thanks, Michael. Hi, everyone. Uh, so, so far as we've been discussing tonight, setting up the topic, the focus has been on the enforcement of the contract and whether or not the contract can be varied by conduct, pre or post-contractual. Um, however, of course, as we know, even if conduct does not or cannot vary the contract, conduct can still affect the rights and liabilities of the parties in the disputes phase. And so moving beyond the contract and what it says about the parties' rights and liabilities and beyond the prospect or the question that we've been considering, which is whether or not conduct can vary the contract, there's an obvious and significant way in which the party's conduct can affect their legal rights and obligations in the disputes phase. And it comes mostly in the form of an estoppel by convention type case. So many of us are familiar with the basic elements of an estoppel by convention, but just to tease out the essential parts, and it's fairly succinct and easy to identify what you have to show when trying to run or defend one of these claims. So you have to first show that the moving party, let's call them party A, adopted an assumption as to the terms of their legal relationship with the other party, party B. You have to prove that party B adopted the same assumption exactly the same assumption. You have to prove that 
both parties then conducted their relationship on the basis of that assumption. That each party knew or intended the other so act, that is that the other conduct their relationship on the basis of that assumption. And finally, that departure from the assumption will cause the moving party, party A, some form of detriment. And for present purposes, I think there's probably two points that jump out from just a consideration of those really basic elements of the claim. Uh, first, and particularly in relation to con construction law disputes, which invariably involve the existence of a contractual relationship as the principal governing framework for the relationship between the parties, when you are either faced with or running an estoppel by convention case, the question of estoppel by convention only comes before the judge, the arbitrator or the decision maker, if they consider that the party who seeks to enforce the contract is indeed correct. This is because by its very nature, a party who runs an estoppel by convention case is seeking to persuade the decision maker that the other party ought not be permitted to rely upon or ought be stopped from relying upon their proper contractual entitlements. An estoppel by convention case therefore calls upon the decision maker to find that the terms of the contract as properly construed before them ought not be applied to the legal problem. But some other framework, some framework governed by an unspoken assumption between the parties ought to apply to defeat one party's proper contractual entitlement. The second thing, and it's linked to the first, is that unlike promissory estoppel, which um, probably gets a little bit more airtime, uh, there's no requirement in an estoppel by convention case that there be a representation. It's not a necessary element. The requirement in an estoppel by convention case is having regard to all the circumstances, the course of dealings between the parties, can it be inferred as a matter of fact that both parties made the same assumption and conducted their legal relationship on that basis. So an estoppel by convention case typically involves a much finer analysis of the conduct between the parties, the way in which they've conducted themselves both in private and in the presence of the other party. And in this way, an estoppel by convention case is much more susceptible to being won and lost on the evidence as to the daily conduct during the course of the project by representatives of both parties at many different levels. This focus on the course of dealings between the parties and what the conduct has to say about their respective states of mind and the assumptions that they make brings estoppel by convention squarely within the crosshairs of what we're here to think about tonight. That is, how the conduct engaged in by the parties can affect their legal relationship and can ultimately be determinative in the disputes phase. <clears throat> So to examine how this may play out, um, I've chosen two single instance decisions made by the same New South Wales Supreme Court judge within two years of one another that both raised estoppel by convention cases. The first case was the matter of Broadlex Services Proprietary Limited and RCI Resolve. Uh, in Broadlex, the plaintiff Broadlex was engaged by the defendant Resolve under a contract to provide cleaning services at the Villawood Immigration Detention Centre and it was a fixed price contract. So although not 
um, a construction law case, it brought with it a few elements about scopes of work, fixed price, and what might fall beyond that fixed price scope of work. After Broadlex commenced providing the services, a dispute arose between the parties as to whether or not Resolve was required to pay certain invoices that Broadlex had issued for what it called periodic cleaning services at the Villawood Detention Centre. In seeking to recover payment for those disputed invoices, Broadlex first ran its contractual case. It contended that the disputed invoices concerned work that was beyond the scope of the scope of works in the fixed price contract. And its principal claim was a contractual one, that on the proper construction of the fixed price contract, that contract did not cover these services. And therefore, in, invo in accepting the services in circumstances where quotations had been provided, it was entitled to be paid by Resolve the extra remuneration for the periodic cleaning services. Broadlex lost the contractual case and the judge was Mr Justice McDougall of the New South Wales Supreme Court and he found on the first argument that properly construed the services that were the subject of the dispute did form part of the fixed price contract. And on that basis under the contract, Broadlex was not entitled to any further remuneration for those services but was confined to the fixed price for the other cleaning services. However, Broadlex, to its wisdom, ran an alternate claim and contended that regardless of the contractual position, after the contract was entered into, each party assumed and expected and conducted themselves on the basis that these periodic services were not covered by the fixed price contract and that Broadlex would be paid an additional fee for those services upon rendering an invoice for them. In this way, Broadlex ran the traditional estoppel by convention case and said that despite what the contract said, and despite what the judge had found the contract to mean, Resolve was stopped from denying that Broadlex was entitled to additional remuneration for these services. The claim advanced by Broadlex was summarised by the judge in the following terms. His Honour said that the conventional estoppel case inquires about whether, despite the scope of the contract properly construed, the parties have acted on a mutually understood position. Accordingly, the question as to intention is whether the relevant officers of the parties adopted as the conventional basis on which the contract was to be performed, that none of the extra charged items would be performed except for additional remuneration. His Honour went on to consider the nature of a stopper by convention in the following terms. He said, in a case such as this, where the parties have contracted for the provision of services, the attention so mutually held and understood by each other to be mutually held must be that the parties intended to transact not in accordance with their rights and obligations as spelt out in the contract, but in accordance with some other assumed state of affairs. It's in this sense that His Honour observed that conduct may trump the contractual rights. And I think that's quite an interesting and neat phrase to sum up the position. Ultimately, the question of intention is fundamental, which leads to the often difficult position of how do you prove intention? How do you prove assumptions? And how do you prove assumptions where there's no positive representation as to which you would find in a promissory estoppel case in the ordinary course? 
So Arizona went through the somewhat laborious task of closely examining the conduct of the parties since the date the contract was entered into in order to determine whether as a question of fact there had been a mutual assumption by the parties as to the scope of the services. And in doing so, the judgment highlights the evidentiary burden faced by parties who try to run estoppel by convention cases. You have to look at the various interactions, written, oral conduct, engaged in by representatives at all levels of the organisation across often a long, lengthy period of time in order to determine whether you can make out the mutual assumption and even if that assumption is not expressly communicated between the parties. Now, the analysis in this case was further complicated by the fact that in this case, one of the elements Broadlex relied upon as conduct was silence. Broadlex said that there was evidence before the judge that there were emails sent by Broadlex to resolve submitting cleaning plans and that some of those cleaning plans had quotations for additional services recorded on them. Now, in considering the effect of those emails, the judge placed emphasis on the following points. He said, first, Resolve did not take any issue with those emails or the cleaning plans, which incorporated the additional quotations. Second, he said that controverting the assertion that could be derived from those cleaning plans, that the periodic cleaning services were not to be performed as part of the routine services, had not been engaged in by Resolve. They simply hadn't engaged in the point at all. And thirdly, and I think this is really important, he referred to the fact that resolved silence was taken in circumstances where there was a right under the contract for them to dispute invoices. The contract had an express mechanism whereby invoices that were submitted by one party could be challenged by the other party and had a dispute resolution clause in relation to that process. And his honour found that when submitted with all the other facts, the conduct of submitting these invoices by Broadlex and resolved silence in the face of those invoices supported the inference of the mutual assumption that Broadlex was contending, that is the periodic services fell outside the scope of the fixed price services. The judge therefore held that despite Broadlex losing its contractual case, it was entitled to be paid the extra remuneration that it claimed and it succeeded on the estoppel by convention case. So returning then to the theme of this evening, I think what the Broadlex decision shows is first how there's often a complex web of interactions that need to be drawn together in order to identify is there evidence of a mutual assumption here or the same assumption being made by the parties. And as many in this room would attest in the contact context of construction disputes, uh, those discussions uh, can happen on many different levels, across many different mediums, and often not necessarily consistent messages being exchanged between the parties. So the evidentiary hurdle of trying to unpick some of that uh, can often be quite challenging. However, if it can be done, to adopt the words of Mr Justice McDougall, conduct can trump the contract. I think the other point to take away from Broadlex is that silence can speak. And the importance of not asserting your contractual rights in the face of inconsistent conduct, con that is conduct inconsistent with the contractual provisions, can bring you unstuck in the disputes phase. The second case I wanted to then briefly touch on, less than two years later, another estoppel by convention case came before um, Mr Justice McDougall in the New South Wales Supreme Court and it was a construction case. 
It concerned the decision of Wattpack Constructions and Charter Hall Funds Management. Now, in that case, Charter Hall engaged Wattpack as the, con as the contractor under a written contract to design and construct a significant new development in the Sydney CBD, which was somewhat unhelpfully described in the judgment as being worth many millions of dollars. Over the life of the contract, Wattpack submitted 36 progress claims to Charter Hall. The first 32 of these were assessed and paid in a way that wasn't contentious between the parties. However, as is often the case, when the rubber hit the road at the pointy end of the project and things started to run over time, Charter Hall claimed an entitlement to liquidated damages and sought to set off those liquidated damages against the final progress claims. The process that the parties then followed for the last four progress claims differed markedly from that that they followed for the first 32. And ultimately, Charter Hall refused to pay any amount in the final payment claim, which was worth $13.5 Wattpack commenced proceedings for recovery of the amount in the final payment claim on the basis that the payment claim it had served was a payment claim under the New South Wales Building Industry Security of Payments Act and that Charter Hall had not submitted a payment schedule in response to that. In defending this claim, Charter Hall contended that, amongst other things, Wattpack was stopped from claiming the last payment claim it served was a valid payment claim and therefore was stopped from asserting any entitlement to payment. So the crux of Charter Hall's defence to the $13.5 million claim was an estoppel by convention defence. And they pleaded three mutual assumptions. The first mutual assumption related to the form by which the claims were submitted. The contract permitted claims to be submitted either by Aconex, by post or by hand. However, the practice that was engaged in by the parties was that notices were always submitted by Aconex. Uh, Charter Hall contended that these payment claims were submitted by hand and therefore were not valid notices submitted under the contract. Um, that didn't get a lot of airtime before the judge, perhaps unsurprisingly. Uh, the second and third assumptions related to the form of the payment claims that were submitted. And Charter Hall contended that despite the contract providing a detailed procedure regulating the terms of the payment claims, the parties conducted their dealings in accordance with another procedure and therefore only valid payment claims could be submitted in accordance with that other non-contractual procedure. Now, most of us would be relieved to hear that Charter Hall didn't succeed. But I think some of the observations made by the judge are particularly helpful for those of us who work in complex contracting environments with, with often large projects. Um, it perhaps gives us some hope. His Honour dealt with the estoppel case fairly briefly. He said the estoppel case is somewhat puzzling. It asserts that large, well-resourced and commercially experienced parties undertaking for many millions of dollars a significant development in the Sydney CBD pursuant to terms of a lengthy and laboriously drafted contract which spelled out in minute and perhaps excruciating detail their rights and obligations in respect of a fundamental element, payment, would depart from that contract and conduct themselves on a conventional basis that was inconsistent with its terms. So he said that's unlikely, but he said the fact it is unlikely does not mean it is not correct. So he left open the door that in such circumstances, a mutual assumption might be proven and you may be able to succeed 
by having your conduct alter even a very sophisticated contract. But I think what this judgment emphasises is the very high bar that needs to be hurdled if you're going to take that course. So once again, I think what this decision throws into uh, stark focus in for those of us who work in large-scale construction disputes or construction disputes of any size really, is the need to look at the emphasis the judge placed on the sophistication of the parties and the sophistication of their contracting framework in order to consider whether or not conduct really could trump this contract. Um, is there a higher standard to be applied when you're dealing with a negotiated agreement as opposed to the purchase order agreement that was at play in the Broadlex decision, which was more of a standard form tender arrangement in place? So where does it leave us? Uh, for those of us who like certainty, in an unhappy place perhaps, although I was talking to some of our colleagues at the start of the session and said, of course, as litigation lawyers, uh, we like uncertainty because it keeps us in a job. I think the obvious point to take out of it is that conduct matters. Uh, we all know that. Um, but although on the one hand we're seeing the emergence of jurisprudence in the contractual environment, which may give us more comfort that the terms of our contract will be enforced, we still need to be very wary of conduct and what happens on site. And we need to be wary of conduct as between real humans. Just looking at the documents will often not tell you the full story. And so as disputes lawyers, what that means is we need to talk to the people. We need to find out what the people thought, what the people did and what conversations the people had. As handy as emails are, they often don't tell the full story. And so piecing together what the real humans thought very early on in the disputes phase will often be critical if you're going to try and um, hurdle the evidentiary burden in some of these estoppel by convention cases. The next point is obviously looking at the complexity of the contract. How detailed was it drafted? Was it negotiated? Were the parties legally represented? Uh, the two decisions of Mr Justice McDougall would suggest that that is a really relevant factor when you're trying to think about the effect conduct has upon your rights and liabilities outside of the contract. And finally, I think in an estoppel by convention case, you come up against the persuasive hurdle. As I said at the outset, an estoppel by convention only arises, you can only run it if you lose the contractual case. You're saying, despite what your honour thinks is the proper contractual position, you should not enforce it because of this conduct. Now, obviously, that presents some challenges for advocates um, and are challenges to remain mindful of when thinking about both pursuing a claim like that or trying to attack it because it presents some opportunities if you're trying to ward it off. We hope that has been suitably unclear. <laughs>